This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, I interviewed Emmy, who's a Melbourne surrogate who delivered baby Harry for his parents in 2018. Emmy talks about her reasons for becoming a surrogate and I've heard lots of reasons and often they're quite similar to other surrogates, but Emmy's is quite unique. I'm going to hand over now to Emmy. Uh, my name's Emmy. Um, I'm a surrogate in Melbourne um, and I have three children, Harry, Sam and Melina. And I gave birth uh, to a fourth baby surrogate as a surrogacy, baby Harry, uh, in August this year, 2018. That's lovely. Um, how did you come to surrogacy, Emmy? Uh, okay, so it's, it's a bit of a long story. Um, Danny and I... Um, easily fell pregnant with our first um, and had Harry in 2011. Um, we found out at 20 weeks what we were um, having, that we were having a boy and I'm one of three girls. So I grew up with girls and I always sort of pictured myself having a daughter. And when we found out that our first child was a son, I was like a little bit disappointed, but I was okay with that. Um, we had baby Harry and he was, you know, healthy, beautiful. Um, we then fell pregnant again a couple of years later and I didn't want to find out with, um, my second pregnancy because I felt, I felt guilty over wanting a daughter so much and worried that if I found out that it was another boy, um, in the pregnancy that I would then, uh, not enjoy the rest of the pregnancy. So we didn't find out until he was born. And I thought, and my reasoning was that if we found out we were having a boy, uh, you know, when he was born, I wouldn't mind because I'd have a, a new baby and I would just be, you know, besotted by my, my new child. And so that is what happened, but I was still, so I was happy, you know, that we had a son, but sad that we hadn't had a daughter still and that we didn't get the pigeon pair that, that I'd pictured having. Um, so... I dealt with gender disappointment after that. And I, f I do feel guilty talking about it, especially with, um, you know, in the surrogacy community and people that are dealing with infertility. Um, but I've also learned that people come from lots of different backgrounds and that you just can't judge how someone else is feeling. You don't know what someone else is going through. And it really, it really affected me. So I was, I went and saw a counsellor um, to deal with this grief and she helped me explain that it's, um, you know, it's, it's normal to feel this grief. It was like a loss, a loss of a daughter that you haven't had, even though I didn't have any negative feelings towards my boys and I didn't want to change them. I loved them for who they were. I still really wanted a girl. Um, so we only wanted to have one more child. And around this time I, that I was seeing the counsellor, I also joined an online community called genderdreaming.com. Um, and there are hundreds, thousands of women all over the world who are suffering with gender disappointment um, and desiring a particular gender. So often a girl, but sometimes a boy as well. Um, and I was looking into, it was just a good place to share feelings, um, experiences, you know, people had different stories. They had sort of two methods on the site to to sort of get your desired gender. And one of them was the low tech, which is like the swaying where you do the diets, you know, the lifestyle factors to try and improve your chances of having the desired gender. But the chances of that working according to the site statistics, which are probably skewed in favor of the positive results was still 65%. And I'm like, 65% is not good enough. Like if we're going to have 
if we're going to have another child, I just naturally, I, I think it's going to be a boy. And then I'm, I, I would probably still love that child, but I would still want a girl. And it's not practical or feasible to continue having children, which is, you know, what people might have done back in the day and ended up with, you know, seven, seven of one gender. But the other method um, discussed on the site is the high-tech, high, high tech, which is basically gender selection IVF. And so I started looking into this. It's not legal to do it here in Australia, so we would have to go overseas. And when I first raised this with my husband, he said, um, you know, no way, that's ridiculous. You know, we have healthy children. We fall pregnant easily. We, we, we're not doing IVF. And um, I just felt so strongly about it. And I went back to the counsellor and I sort of talked about it with her. And she said, I think you should, you know, go away and investigate this. Um, you know, and you'll probably come back and decide that it's, um, you know, expensive and invasive and, you know, not necessary. But it, and, until you sort of explore all options, you know, you won't get that closure. So she said to go away and investigate. And so that's what I did. And the more I investigated it, the more I thought it seemed possible. And I really wanted to try it. So I thought we were, you know, lucky that we live in a first world country where we have access, you know, that we're fortunate enough we, we can afford to do this. It was still expensive, you know, it was about $20,000. Um, we didn't, you can do it in America, um, but we, we looked at Thailand and around the time that we were looking at it uh, was when the, the baby gammy incident happened and so the Thai laws were in the process of changing. But I had contacted a clinic um, and I'd seen from, you know, discussing with other girls on the forum that, um, that Bangkok was possible and that they, the, the clinic was still doing it. Um, so I think in Thailand it's like, you know, their laws are, even if the laws have changed, I'm sure they have laws like about driving and seatbelts. I'm sure you're supposed to, you know, follow the road rules. But when you're over there, no one wears seatbelts. You know, there's kids on motorbikes without helmets. So they were, they were still doing gender selection. So we, this was in 2013, Sam was born. And so it was sort of after I finished breastfeeding him, we started looking at it. I had to go to a GP and get a referral first um, for a fertility specialist. And my GP was very understanding. Um, and she put me on to a fertility specialist from Monash IVF who I had an appointment with and she wasn't exactly in favour of it, but she did agree to help me. Um, so I had to do stimulation here in Melbourne and it was it got complicated because I was also liaising with the Thai clinic and my fertility specialist over there via email and I had to be quite active in communicating because they had different ideas sometimes about medication and I just had to be proactive in knowing what was going on with the cycle. Um, so I stuck with the advice mostly from the fertility specialist here in Melbourne with what medication to take. Um, so I was on Sonaril and then Gonalef. Um, I'd get Danny to do the injections because I just I couldn't yeah, inject myself in the stomach. And then we flew to Bangkok in April 2015. So we left the kids with the grandparents um, and Danny and I flew over and we just... I remember on the way to the airport, he was like, we're really doing this. And we just thought, you know, I wanted to live my life having, being able to say, wow, I can't believe that we did that rather than I wish I had have tried that. So we just wanted to give it a go. Um, we'd sort of talked about how many cycles we could do. Um, I mean, we were hoping that one, one cycle was enough. 
but he also left a sperm sample over there in case I, you know, maybe I could come back for a second egg retrieval if we needed. We, I had to stim for a few extra days. So he, Danny, returned home first. Um, and it was, it was scary because we're in a foreign country. Um, you know, they, the English was pretty good, but I was still there on my own then for the um, egg retrieval part and going into the clinic. Um, but it all went fine. We couldn't do a fresh transfer because um, my lining wasn't thick enough. So I stayed for a few extra days and then came home um, where we awaited the emails um, with the results. So we had, I had 19 eggs retrieved, um, 13 were mature and 12 fertilised. And by day five, we only had two hatching. Um, so we waited till day six um, and we ended up getting another four to testing. Um, and because... Yeah, we did the, so PGD testing, um, so they remove a cell and check the yep, chromosomes. And of those six, uh, one was abnormal and five were normal, which is pretty good in terms of, it was a pretty good number of embryos. Um, but of the five normal, four were uh, boys, XY, and only one was a girl, um, XX. So we sort of had one shot um, at transfer. I uh, had to go back a few months later um, because I had lining issues. It took a, a while to get my lining thick enough. I was on, I think, nine Proganova per day, nine, nine peels. I started at one three times a day and then up that to three three times a day. Uh, I was taking another drug, Dufaston, which you can't get here. I got that in Thailand, um, estrogen patches, and then I had to insert estrogen intravaginally as well to get to get my lining thick enough. So I was having lots of scans. I was getting really frustrated by it. I just wanted to go back and transfer that one embryo and see if it would work. Um, I think eventually we got to 6.1 millimetres, but they normally prefer seven or eight. Um, but I was just pushing for the transfer at that time. I remember thinking, I'm, I feel like it's going to work. My body is, I'm, it's probably just naturally thin, but it, it could still be really good. So we flew over and it worked. So... We are so lucky that we were able to complete our family with um, a baby girl, Melina, who was born um, March 2016. And as we were going through the process, um, I sort of made a, made a promise um, that I'm not very religious, but it was more sort of to whatever higher powers exist, please let this work for us and we will help um, another family to have a baby. And so when it worked, I thought, I wanted to look into surrogacy. That was my way of sort of repaying, repaying the universe, um, that we were so lucky to complete our family relatively easily. And I also thought that I was going to be a good candidate for surrogacy, I guess. Like I was young, I'd completed my family and I'd been through IVF, so I thought I know what's involved with the transfer and I thought I must have a pretty sticky uterus. Um, it had worked first go. And we didn't know anyone at the time that that needed any help. We had a lot of friends sort of going through infertility issues, but no one that needed surrogacy. And we waited until Melina was one. So I wanted to breastfeed for a year again. So Danny sort of said, you know, this is not, you don't still have to do this. And I was like, yes, we do. Even though we don't know anyone who needs help, uh, there's, I'm sure there's still people out there. So it was around that time then that Melina had turned one. So beginning of 2017, um, that I joined the Australian surrogacy community uh, on Facebook. 
And this, oh, this came to me because I'd started mentioning to friends and family um, my desire to be a surrogate. And a friend of a friend put me on to, uh, had another friend who'd emailed their friends and family that needed, and they needed a surrogate. And I ended up asking um, for her contact details. And I met up with this, um, with this person who's also on the Australian surrogacy community, but she'd around the same time also been, been chatting with um, an old school friend who was interstate, who also ended up offering um, to be her surrogate. And she ended up, yeah, using that relationship. So I said to her, well, what, do you know anyone else who, you know, might need a surrogate? And she was the one that put me onto Australian surrogacy community. So I started um, just researching a lot, reading through um, introductions. I knew that I wanted to um, complete a local journey because I'd um, sort of read, yeah, read a lot and from the surrogacy support, surrogate support page, the sister page, um, and thought a local journey would um, be a lot easier um, to have, you know, that uh, relationship with IPs who could, you know, come to all the appointments and just be there to support you more. So I was sort of stalking um, all of the Melbourne IPs and putting together sort of a list. I also was looking at heterosexual couples, not for any reason other than I thought that was someone I could identify with um, being you know, heterosexual and just want, imagining, you know, what if my husband and I couldn't have kids um, and imagine if we, we had that infertility, wanting to help someone experiencing that. Since joining the community, though, of course, I'm, I'm now seeing homosexual couples and thinking, well, you know, there's no reason they shouldn't have children as well. And, you know, everyone has a right to be parents. But at the time, that's what I was looking for. And what attracted me to my IPs was how active they were on the page. Um, they were always supportive of other people's journeys. Um, and probably also their age. They were a little bit older, but I sort of liked that because I thought um, their clock their clock is ticking, um, you know, so I wanted, I wanted to help them help someone so- soonish. And that they were quite mature and, you know, definitely ready. They'd been trying for 12 years um, at that point to, to get pregnant. So I invited Lisa around for a cuppa sort of in early Feb of 2017 and we got along quite well. So we managed to chat quite easily. She came over to my place one afternoon and my daughter, I think, woke up from her nap and Lisa was fantastic with her. Like she was just down on the floor, um, you know, asked to pick her up, just playing with her, um, interacting with her straight away. And after that, I think we organised to go to one of the local Melbourne dinners and I brought Danny along to meet Lisa and Henry and and I met Henry. But I also wanted to meet other surrogates um, and sort of suss out some of the other Melbourne IPs. I didn't really like the idea of dating more than one couple. I think I felt like I was, I didn't want to feel like I was leading people on. And especially because I liked Lisa straight away, Lisa and Henry, I thought there's no, there's no need to check whether anything else is better. I'll just see where this goes. And, you know, unless there's a red flag, then maybe I can, you know, look, look at someone else. But I liked that they were, yeah, half an hour away and they were, yeah, very friendly. So, the dinner was okay. We found it a bit weird and I had wished that I had met, gotten to meet more surrogates, but it was good that I met um, some other intending parents and some other lovely intending parents, but 
a lot of them seemed um, were a lot younger and I thought that they sort of still had plenty of time and, um, you know, to fall pregnant or to, to find someone. So it sort of, yeah, cemented to me um, what I liked about Lisa and Henry. And they also had their egg donor, Kate, met as well at the dinner and she was lovely. And we had children that were a similar age. Her, her two children were the same age as my second and third. So... And actually, her daughter's birthday, Layla, was five days apart from Melina. So I felt like it was kind of a, yeah, little coincidence. And um, they were waiting for, you know, for her to finish breastfeeding at Layla's first birthday as well so that they could do their egg retrieval. So, yeah, they needed an egg donor and a surrogate. So after that, I think we did a family afternoon tea in April in the park so that they could meet all of our kids. So um, Lisa hadn't met had met some of them and again they just the kids loved them they got along really well with the kids and I just thought these you know these people just seem like natural parents like they should be parents Henry in particular actually reminds me (laughs) a little bit of my dad which I think is why I also thought he's yeah he's father material he's got he's got all the dad jokes already so after that we invited them to a dinner at our place Uh, this was sort of upon advice from previous surrogates um, on the forum as well, where we um, discussed all of those difficult topics. So we both come prepared with a list of all the things, um, you know, that we wanted to make sure we were on the same page with. So thoughts on termination, um, where to birth, who would be there, vaccination, all of those things. And we just kind of, the conversation flowed, but we all sort of agreed on most things. And we're all quite flexible as well on, you know, on, what would happen, no one was really sort of hard and fast on what this has to happen. Um, We were all just kind of in agreement about those, yeah, practical things. And so by the end of that, we thought, well, yeah, let's, let's do this. So it wasn't really a very formal offer. Like we didn't do that in a quirky way. It was just kind of, yeah, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't give this a go. So we started all of the counselling, which was good that we had had all of those sort of um, conversations because it was pretty much what came up in counselling and I will say about the counselling so at first yeah my husband was a little bit irritated that he had to take time off work and go through the process but and even though a lot of the stuff we talked about we all sort of already knew um, it was it was reinforcing and it is necessary and I really liked that Monash IVF had this built-in counselling where you could access more sessions um, later on in the journey So not just the compulsory um, group and individual ones near the start, but I went back a few times to um, speak to Rita, not even because anything was wrong necessarily, just to keep on top of my own um, mental health and just someone who who understood surrogacy um, to listen to. So I now definitely see counselling not as, you know, something that you have to do because they're checking up on you and making sure that, you know, you're the right people, um, you know, to to, to do surrogacy it's just to, to help you so we did the counseling um lisa and henry had just done their egg retrieval with kate and they had gotten two embryos but they had said you know that we could they could do more if needed kate was prepared to do another cycle um if they didn't work and they also did testing so they did the pgd testing on those embryos which i also recommend um you know a lot of people don't do it. I don't know. Hopefully it's becoming more common. And, you know, you just, you might think that you can just look at embryo quality, but I think 
you just don't know. There could be major chromosomal issues. Of course, it doesn't screen for everything, as and we've you know heard stories of embryos that have tested normally for those chromosomes, but then they could have other single gene defects that you can't test for unless you know there's a family history. But I think definitely testing, doing the testing can rule out embryos that are definitely going to be abnormal and transfer won't work. And then you save the cost of that transfer and the time that it takes. And for me, that it, the first one worked. So I had done the PGD testing with, you know, our to, to, to get our daughter and it worked. And then they had two embryos that had tested normal. So we did the counselling. We also did legals. Um, we used a a local lawyer, uh, Sarah Jefford, you may have heard of her. She was, she was all right. <laughs> I've heard she's and <laughs> we, we were ready to go to our patient review panel by August. Um, I think we'd had all the paperwork sort of done um, and the reports done, but the September places were already full, so we had to wait until October. Um, so for people in Victoria, that can be another holdup, just the extra couple of months. Um, waiting and we ended up having a transfer in November so first transfer and it worked so the meds that I was on for that transfer uh, I did have a reaction to the crinone that I was put on so the progesterone gel um, made me uh, the first I've been on it for one day and I started to get really lightheaded and nauseous um, and feel really sick and I was marking exams at the time I remember it was horrible and I was stressed out so I stopped it and asked to switch to pessaries the progesterone pessaries um, because I'd had those before and I hadn't noticed that kind of reaction and then it was funny like the fertility specialist um, said you shouldn't they shouldn't cause a reaction but then I did a lot of reading and heard from other people that yes they can have a reaction with some people um, and I was still on the, the nine Proganova pills a day and the estrogen patches um, and, you know, the pessaries and have to stay all, on all that till 12 weeks. So that's, um, yeah, annoying, but it's funny how quickly you forget about it. Mm -hmm. I also had terrible morning sickness, um, which I'd had. It's sort of gotten progressively worse, I think, with each pregnancy that I had. And this was the first time I tried some on Dancitron. Because the transfer was November, I was uh, early stages of pregnancy over Christmas and it was it was really quite yuck. Um, I remember Christmas Eve was at my family's and I was pretty much just on the couch. I didn't want to move. I couldn't. I just didn't have energy. I felt gross. And then it was lucky Danny's a school teacher because he was on holidays. So it was pretty much from the time he finished work over the whole summer holidays, I was not not up for doing a lot and he had to do quite a lot with the kids. And then the day he went back to work, I started feeling better. So I don't, I don't know if it was a little bit <laughs> um, psychological as well, but <laughs> I definitely had definitely had extreme morning sickness. And I tried the Ondansetron but it made me very constipated, the worst constipation that I'd ever had, super painful. So I only used it a couple of times and it didn't, like it kind of eased the, the nausea a little bit, but it was just like, you know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't win. That did ease off though after sort of 12, 14 weeks and then second trimester probably was, yeah, as, as good as it can be. Mm -hmm. um, and Lisa and Henry were great throughout the whole 
process. They were as supportive as you can be. They would cook us, yeah, a number of a number of meals, especially towards the end of the pregnancy. They really stocked up our freezer with things like uh, lasagna and legsotto. So they were finding out what the family liked. I also had a card through the pregnancy um, for vitamins and appointments, which I also think is uh, essential pretty much. I mean, you need to trust trust one another, but it just takes, takes the pressure out of having to ask um, for money or reimbursement. And they'd hired a cleaner fortnightly sort of towards the second half of the pregnancy. And they took the kids out quite a few times to give me a break um, again, more towards the end. Lisa was coming over once a week sort of at the end so that I could schedule um, appointments that time. Um, I was the day Sam had kinder and Harry was at school. So I just had Melina, but then I would organise to do any counselling that I wanted to do then or blood tests or anti-D, flu shot, glucose tolerance tests. I remember one week it was a rat, it was within the space of one or two weeks I'd had to have the glucose tolerance test, which is the few needles in the day, the flu shot, an anti-D shot because I'm Reese's negative. And I was just, I was so frustrated with all of the needles that week. But the hardest part was definitely at the end and going 10 days overdue. So with my pregnancies, I had, I'd been early with my first, Harry, and then I'd come to expect that with the second and third, but they went sort of closer to the due date. Uh, Melina was three days over. And baby Harry, the second baby Harry, so I've given birth to two Harrys, was 10 days overdue and they were, they were just really hard. Because I was so detached throughout the pregnancy, which is a good thing in a lot of ways as a surrogate, I definitely didn't feel, yeah, I didn't feel attachment to the baby. I wasn't excited about the pregnancy. I wasn't looking forward to the baby. I was kind of looking forward to it being over at that point. I'd been ready to give the baby back. For a, for a while, the novelty of being pregnant with someone else's child wore off quite quickly. It was, yeah, it was, it was fun at first telling people, but I was ready for it to be over. So I was pretty much begging to be induced. Um, they, oh, they couldn't do it on the, oh, we went in for a monitoring appointment on the Thursday and we asked to be induced on the Friday, but they were having like a scheduled power outage at the hospital so they weren't planning any extra inductions and then we found out later it didn't end up happening because of the high wind and we didn't couldn't be induced on the weekend because uh the social worker wasn't going to be there but then we found out later that we don't we didn't even have to see the social worker it was because our midwife was away there was a different midwife on who thought that that was the right thing to do so we ended up getting induced monday and the good thing about getting induced i guess was that i was able to ask for an epidural um, which I'd had with my first and not with the second two. And I knew that the pain was quite excruciating and I was a screamer. So I was hoping that I would get an epidural to make it a bit more pleasant for everyone in the room, just because we were going to have Lisa and Henry there um, and a birth photographer and my husband. So it, it really did make for a much more pleasant environment. So they started the induction in the morning. It took three goes to break my waters which was uncomfortable. And then we got the hormone drip going pretty much straight away. Uh, contraction started and then the anaesthetist came in at pretty much the right time when it was just getting intense to do the epidural. Um, and I still remember how uncomfortable it was. I had, I, I had been really feeling um, the baby kicking me under the ribs like towards the end of the pregnancy and 
when I had to hunch over to get the epidural put in, I could still feel him hurting me. I couldn't breathe properly. I was having contractions. I had to stay still for the needle. It was, it was just horrible. And he was, yeah, just quite a strong baby. Once that kicked in though, everyone sort of, everyone had left the room for them to do that. And then sort of tag team for lunch. That was around midday. We'd gone in at, I think, 7am to start the induction. Everyone sort of tag teamed to go and get lunch. Um, and then the midwife came back in from her break and did a check and we were 10 centimetres and it had happened, you know, like nothing because we'd been talking and laughing and joking since the epidural had gone in. So then everyone came back in and pushing pushing started and it was it was pretty much how I pictured it, that everyone was there uh, Danny was sort of supporting one of my legs had gone numb. The other one was okay. And Lisa and Henry got to watch uh, baby Henry or baby Harry come out. And he was placed um, onto my stomach, which was, which was good. I kind of liked that no one sort of had a first hold. We were just kind of all there together when he came out. I really wasn't that interested. I was just trying to catch my breath. But, you know, Lisa put her hand on him straight away and, you know, it was, it was nice and it was it went to plan and he was, you know, perfect, healthy, healthy baby. And they were just ecstatic. But shortly after that, we had a little um, hiccup where the placenta wouldn't come out. And I remember feeling quite starting to get really anxious. Like I was so relieved that the, the birth was over. But then they were trying the kneading. They gave me um, an injection in each leg um, to try and get the, the placenta coming. And it just wasn't. And she, the midwife got, she tried twice and then she got another doctor in to try who had been her lucky charm apparently. And I thought, oh, third time's been a charm today, but then that didn't work. So when they told me I had to go to theatre to have the placenta manually removed, I got quite upset. Um, and that was a little bit scary as well, getting wheeled off in the bed. But that all, it all went fine. They just sort of topped up the epidural. I was still feeling a lot of pressure, which was um, yuck. And I let them know about it. Um, the anaesthetist kept saying like, are you feeling pain or are you feeling pressure? Because I kept making noises and talking through the whole thing, saying I can feel it. And she said, well, just say pressure. So I was saying pressure, pressure, pressure the whole time. And she ended up giving me so much epidural that I couldn't breathe properly. And I was like, I'm, I can't breathe properly. She goes, it's just because I've given you so much of the drug. And then after that, I was just so weak. I got the, the shakes um, and they were piling on all the hot blankets. And when I got wheeled up after the procedure, Danny was in the um, waiting room in my room. So Lisa and Henry had gone back to their own room with baby Harry. Um, so the hospital was really good that it accommodated two rooms for us. And we had a little emotional moment then when, um, when I came back up and saw Danny. And then, yeah, I sort of spent uh, one night in hospital. I had to stay on the antibiotics after the placenta removal for 24 hours. So I went home the following night and uh, I had to, it took a while to get feeling back into my legs. The next day it was very shaky but it was really nice being able to just focus on my recovery and not have to worry about a newborn. Um, in fact, the next day, I remember Lisa and Henry messaging me to say, let us know when you want us to come in and say hi and, you know, bring baby Harry in. And I didn't even write back for a couple of hours because I was like trying to get the energy to eat my breakfast and maybe get up and go to the toilet and take the catheter out. And I just, it was just so nice not having, I don't know how I would have done it if I'd had that procedure and then had to look after a newborn and breastfeed and do all of that, I just wouldn't, it would have been really tough. 
So it was really nice just being able to, to focus on me and know that, that the baby was being completely cared for. And then they stayed one more night in hospital um, with the baby and have been doing, yeah, fantastic ever since. They've taken really naturally um, to parenthood. Um, we've had lots of catch-ups um, since then. The first week they actually booked an Airbnb to be closer to the hospital um, and near where, where we live so that we could um, see them more regularly. And it was good for the kids. I wanted my kids to come and visit in hospital and see me in hospital and then baby Harry in hospital just so they could connect the dots. And then we visited um, them in their Airbnb and they visited us a few times. And then we've also visited them with the kids at their house. Just I wanted them to see where baby Harry sleeps and where he lives. They've been pretty fine with it, really. They haven't, yeah, they've just accepted, kids are just very accepting. We've just told them right from the start, you know, this is um, not our baby. We're helping Lisa and Henry grow a baby. And we've sort of, yeah, stayed, stayed in contact, but uh, things have eased off a little bit, which is to be expected. They're, you know, busy with their newborn and I'm busy getting back to, yeah, having time and energy for my kids and my family. I think we've done some play dates though, which has been really nice. And yeah, I really like how uh, we we also did went to the gender reveal that they had um, and the baby shower, and it's nice. We felt really included. Um, yeah, through the whole through the whole journey, and they're you know going to be very open with um, Harry about where he's come from and um, putting together a storybook for him with um, Kate, you know, as the egg donor, and me myself as the surrogate. And it's now three months postpartum. Um, I have also had, so no emotional um, issues really since um, the birth. I have felt really uh, positive pretty much the whole time. I know some surrogates have, you know, might, might be, get upset for reasons that might not seem to be related to surrogacy and it's just hormones. So I was prepared for all of that, but I really have been lucky that I have, haven't had any of that. I've been seeing lots of photos, um, you know, they've been sharing a lot, which is also, you know, eases off when it's, when you've got a newborn, you're sort of taking photos every day and then it becomes, you know, less and less and they don't change as much. And I feel like it's just been the perfect amount. It's nice getting photos. I like seeing them, but I don't feel like I need to see them. And I also don't feel like I need to hold him. I really haven't had any of that sort of physical, yeah, requirement. And so emotionally great. Physically, I did have a prolapse two weeks uh, postpartum to sort of week five postpartum. I felt quite uncomfortable and I went and saw a pelvic strength physio um, and had a couple of appointments with her, which was, it was just diagnosed as a mild prolapse and I've been doing exercises, just pelvic floor exercises to bring it back to normal and it is feeling pretty much normal now. Just going to avoid high impact exercise um, for the next six to 12 months, which I probably would anyway. What were your feelings having to do with post-birth complications, I guess, having been a surrogate? That was, well, that was probably the only time I did get a little bit emotional, was like, why is this prolapse happening now? This is so unfair. But really knowing that it's, and the, the physio said this as well, it's, it is kind of like the straw that broke the vagina's back, but for pregnancies, a lot of the damage she said is actually done on the first pregnancy. So it's, it's accumulative. So it didn't really feel like I could, you know, blame baby Harry for it. He didn't know what he was doing. He was bigger than my others slightly. It went from sort of 3.1 to 
to 3.4 to 3.6 to 3.8 kilos sort of thing. But a lot of the damage is actually done the first time you give birth apparently and that any woman who's given birth has a mild, I think, level one or grade one drop or something. So I did feel a little bit frustrated, but at the end of the day, I knew that it was what I signed up for, that it could happen. And it's also lucky that it hasn't been worse, that I haven't needed surgery, um, that it has gone away. um, So, and that it is, yeah, that I have pretty much healed. But yeah, for that short amount of time, yeah, it was a little bit, was a little, felt a little bit unfair. (laughs) Like, hang on, I've just done a really good thing. This isn't supposed to happen. You're three months postpartum now. Do you feel like you're in the the new normal? Is this is this sort of the end of the surrogacy, or do you feel like the journey is continuing? I I think so. I don't know. I I feel like I haven't had yeah like the three month wobbles or anything, and I'm definitely not looking to do another journey because of how I was towards yeah sort of the second half of the pregnancy. I knew that I that this was my last pregnancy. In fact, with Melina, I was quite upset that I felt like sad that it was going to be my last pregnancy. And that was another reason for wanting to do surrogacy. But then throughout the surrogacy pregnancy, I just felt pretty glad. Every, every milestone that happened, I was like, good, this is the last time I need to do this, last time I need to do this. So I did feel like I was quite final. And in terms of this journey, I don't, yeah, I don't really see it as a start or a finish. Um, I do feel like I've, I, don't have as much time or energy for the surrogacy community now, which makes me feel a little bit guilty that I've kind of stepped back from, um, you know, being involved in uh, watching all the other journeys. But I think I have needed that time back for my own family. So, yeah, I don't know if it's if it's over in that sense, but the relationship with Lisa and Henry and baby Harry will still always be there. Nothing's going to change that, um, you know, where he came from. And that's that's really special. I don't think anything's ever going to take that away. Do you have any advice for surrogates or intended parents that are thinking about surrogacy? Uh, Yes. (laughs) So get educated. Um, So things like attending the seminars, um, reading up as much as you can, joining the Facebook group and listening to these podcasts, I think are a really good way to learn about surrogacy. Uh, Get active. So attend local catch-ups and dinners in your area, um, meet with other people and get your story out there. So be active with sharing um, to your extended network, hard as that is sometimes. Um, So without necessarily advertising, but just send emails to friends and family, just letting them know where you're at because you never know who has been considering surrogacy and just didn't know that you needed that, um, like me. So just get your story out there um, because you never know. And be proactive. So... Things like taking care of yourself and your own mental health, accessing counselling when you need to. Um, Be proactive when you have a surrogate because taking care of your surrogate is part of taking care of your baby. That's saying that we've heard a few times. So do things like instead of asking what do you need, ask um, what meals does the family like and how often would you like us to, to hire a cleaner and what days would suit to pick up the kids, etc. Instead of just saying, what can we do to help? Because a surrogate will often say, um, no, it's okay. You know, we've got it under control and it's hard to ask for help. So just be proactive in offering specific help. So, yep, get educated, get active and be proactive. I think that's really great advice from Emmy. Get educated, get active and be proactive. If you're interested in more about surrogacy, you can find my website at sarahjefford.com 
and I'm also on Facebook and on Instagram.